The Coram Deo Church community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you are about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. Our scripture reading this morning is Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. The word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning. I get to bring you greetings this morning from the people of Sojourn Chattanooga and from Isaiah and Liz Lewis. Some of you will remember them from when they were part of our church here. So Lee and I got to be in Chattanooga last week. I think when you guys were praying here for this church, I was preaching in this church. So fun partnership. Thank you for praying last week. Um, when you invest in the mission of Coram Deo, these are the kinds of stories that we get to write together. Um, Isaiah was a church planting resident here at our church in 2021, and then we were able to connect him to a church in Chattanooga that had been planted, but the pastor had stepped down, and so he and Liz moved there at the beginning of 2022, and that church is doing wonderful things, thriving and doing excellent gospel ministry in the heart of Chattanooga. It was fun to be able to be there and to be able to invest in them and celebrate what God's doing there. So they wanted me to bring you greetings um, and let you know that they are grateful for you and for the role that you all played in helping to shape them and prepare them for the ministry that God's called them to. So it's fun to be able to celebrate stories like that together. Um, we do have a role on our team that's called pastoral resident or church planting resident. And that role exists so that we can take leaders like Isaiah and give them a year or so of training and then help launch them out into ministry. And so as you invest financially here at Quorum Dale, one of the things we're doing is raising up leaders for the sake of gospel renewal. And it's fun to be part of a church that has the opportunity to do that and fun to get to be part of some of those stories as God brings renewal to his church throughout the world. Uh, as we dive into the book of Philippians this morning, I want to talk to you about the problem of religious respectability. The problem of religious respectability. All of us want to be respected, right? All of us want to be liked. We all want to be appreciated. We all want to be valued. And those longings don't go away when we walk in the doors of this building. Even in church, we desire to be perceived in a certain way by other people. And of course, as you know, different rooms that you're in have different requirements of what makes you respectable in that room, right? So some of you have been in workplace environments where you know, oh, there's certain things in this room that people tend to value. 
Or some of you that are in medical school and have had to go through the sort of journey of landing a spot and then looking at a residency. There's certain things in that world that make you respectable and desirable in that world. If you're a CrossFitter, certain things that that world cares about, right? If you're into drama or dance or music, certain things that those artistic endeavors care about and things that make you respectable in those worlds. And likewise, when you enter into a church, your mind is asking the question, all right, what do people here care about? What makes me respectable in this environment? Our hearts naturally are asking that question, right? Anytime we enter into a new situation, part of what we're asking is, what do people want from me in this room? What counts here? What matters to these people? What, what makes me a respectable or desirable or interesting person in this room? And because our hearts are naturally asking that question, when we show up to church, we bring our desires to be appreciated and liked and valued and respected with us. And so we're often asking that in church. Like, what are the things that make us valuable here? What do people here want me to be? And if we're not careful, we can easily fall into becoming what we suppose people want us to be, or posturing ourselves in ways that we assume matter to people who have a religious sort of tradition or background. And the problem with that is that our quest for religious respectability actually works against the gospel in our own hearts, in a church, in the world. The gospel, after all, is the glorious good news that you are not actually very respectable. That if we knew about you what God knows about you, we probably wouldn't want to hang out with you either, right? The gospel is the good news that God saves sinners. And that what makes us count, what makes us matter, what makes us respectable in the eyes of God is the fact that we are people in need of mercy, people in need of grace, people who are sinners who need a Savior. A church that believes the gospel is a community of sinners. And when we try to cling to religious respectability, when we sort of play the game of what do, what, who should I be in a churchy room, we end up dulling the impact of the gospel in our lives and in our church and in our city. And so what I want to try to do this morning, what the scriptures want to try to do this morning, is, is just pull back the veil on our quest for religious respectability. Show us what a foolish quest that is and give us a way better answer, a way better vision of what we ought to be seeking. What the scriptures show us in Philippians 3, 1 through 7 is that the gospel is a radical call to stake everything on Jesus. The gospel is a radical call to stake everything on Jesus, to set aside our desires for respectability, to set aside whatever we think people might value, whatever we think might be important in any given situation or room, to set all that aside and to stake everything on Jesus. That's what the gospel calls us to do. And the danger, of course, is that we can be very religious people. We can be very devout people. We can be very respectable people without staking everything on Jesus. A few years ago now, Michael Horton penned this book with a provocative title, Christless Christianity. 
And the goal of this book is just to raise the question, did you know that such a thing is possible? Did you know that we can play the game of Christianity without staking everything on Jesus Christ? I don't want to do that. I hope you don't want to do that either. And Philippians 3 helps us avoid a Christless Christianity. The gospel is a radical call to stake everything on Jesus. And so the, the outline this morning is real simple. It's just Philippians 3 verses 1 through 7 are going to show us two things, what the gospel calls us out of and what the gospel calls us into. Okay? So that's the journey we're going to go on. What is it the gospel calls us out of? What does the gospel call us into as it issues this radical call to stake everything on Jesus? So if you have a Bible, please open it to Philippians 3. Uh, I forgot to write down what page that is in the Bible under your seat. So someone can feel free to yell it out right now. Man, you guys are great. 922, like seven people yelled that out at the same time. Excellent work. 922, if you're using one of the Bibles under your seat. Philippians 3, I'm going to start in verse 2. We'll come back to verse 1 later. Philippians 3, verse 2, what the gospel calls us out of. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. That's the key phrase you're going to see repeated a few more times in this passage, and that's what the gospel calls us out of. What is it the gospel calls us out of? Well, it calls us out of confidence in the flesh or putting confidence in the flesh. The language of the flesh here means Everything you are outside of Christ, all of your achievements and advantages, all your skills and abilities, all the things that make you impressive or respectable in the eyes of people, the gospel calls you out of putting confidence in all of that. So think about this. When you walk into a room full of strangers, what do you want them to know about you? When you walk into church on a Sunday morning, what are you putting forward? How do you want to be known? How do you want to be related to by people? What things are important for people to know so that they get a right perspective on who you are? What, what kind of person do you want to be? What do you want people to know about you? When I travel to speak in various places, often I'm asked for a bio like I spoke at Bryan College last week in their chapel service, and so I hadn't been there. They didn't know me. I didn't know them. And so they were like, hey, would you send us a copy of your bio so that when we introduce you to the students, you know, we can reference that. And in my world, I've just got a document on the hard drive that's called bio, right? And it's the reply to the email. Attach that. Here's the bio. Do you want to hear it? It's super impressive, you guys. Here's my bio. Bob Thune is founding and lead pastor of Cormdale Church in Omaha, Nebraska, and a fellow of the, cultural center, or the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics. He's the author of Gospel Eldership, the co-author of the Gospel-Centered Life and the Gospel-Centered Community, and the creator of the Daily Liturgy Podcast. Bob holds degrees from the University of Oklahoma and from Reformed Theological Seminary. In addition to his work as a pastor and writer, he helps to lead a classical Christian school, coaches and trains church leaders, serves on the Council of the Gospel Coalition. I mean, if you heard that, wouldn't you be like, wow, I want to hear what this person has to say next? That is impressive. 
I'm on the edge of my seat. I have to have that because of my role and because I get asked to speak at places that demand that I send them a bio. But I want to know, like, like, what's your bio? I mean, you have one of these too. It might not be in a document on your hard drive, but what's the thing that if you're showing up somewhere and people are like, hey, who are you and what have you done and why should we listen to you? What do you put out there? Whatever those things are or would be, that's what confidence in the flesh probably looks like for you. Now, there's some of you who don't actually want to stand out in a room, and so you're like, actually, if I were to walk into a room, I would not want to offer a bio in any way. I would just sort of want to fade into the background and just be there. No one needs to know who I am. It's fine. I just want to be in the room. I don't want to stand out. Got bad news for you. That also is confidence in the flesh. You may have a way you want to be known, or you may not want to be known. And either way, those are ways that you adjust how people relate to you and experience you. They're just various expressions of the same dynamic of confidence in the flesh. Who am I apart from the grace of Christ? And the gospel calls us out of confidence in the flesh. Now, to make sense of the rest of this passage, we need to understand the importance of circumcision and why it provides sort of a a case study here. In the first century church, of course, you had Jewish Christians who had a Jewish background, and then you had Gentiles or pagan Christians who had come to faith in Jesus from a polytheistic sort of pagan kind of worship. And so you had monotheists, polytheists, you had people with a deep Jewish cultural heritage and people with a Roman or Greek cultural heritage. You had people who had deep religious rituals and people whose religious rituals were very pagan. And in Judaism, one of the great sources of national pride and religious respectability was the ritual of circumcision. This was a sign of God's covenant with Abraham Back in Genesis 17, and every faithful Jew for generations had been circumcised as a sign of devotion to God and of descent from Abraham. Now, if you've read the Old Testament a little bit, you know that as you go through the history of the Old Testament, what happens is God's people are persistently unfaithful to his covenant. They don't worship him alone. They don't obey his laws. They do not live faithfully as his people. They are disloyal. And so God, toward the end of the Old Testament, judges their unfaithfulness by sending them into exile, by kicking them out of the land and allowing them to become captives in pagan nations. And in the time between the Testaments, there's a struggle for the question of um, Jewish identity. These people who are chosen by God and promised his covenant blessings, and then they've been exiled from the land, what is it going to mean for them to be regathered and to return and to be uh, faithful again to the covenant? In the time between the Testaments, some of the Jewish zealots enacted a policy of forced circumcision. In other words, even if you weren't Jewish, if you wanted to live in the promised land, in the boundaries of Israel, you had to be circumcised. In Paul's day, there were people in and around the early church who said, if you're a Gentile who comes to faith in Jesus, you must be circumcised because this is the sign of God's covenant. This is a sign that you belong to him. This is the promise he made to Abraham. 
Theologians call these people the Judaizers because essentially what they're doing is taking people who are Gentiles and try to sort of like make them more Jewish culturally. You might think that sounds like a secondary cultural debate, but it's not. In fact, the problem with it is it's a direct assault on the gospel. Because if there's something else you have to do other than repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, then you've added something to the gospel. And so these people who are saying, hey, congratulations, Gentiles, welcome to the faith. Now you need to be circumcised. That was not just a secondary cultural thing that didn't matter. It was adding something to the gospel. And so Paul minces no words in his condemnation of these Judaizers. In verse 2, he says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. They called themselves the circumcision. Paul calls them the mutilators. There's a little play on words in Greek here. Strong language. What was the problem? Well, the problem was that circumcision was an example of confidence in the flesh. It was an example of making something other than Jesus the center and the most important thing. And so to show the foolishness of that, Paul rolls out his own Jewish resume. He says, hey, if you guys want to talk circumcision, cool, game, set, match. I can play that game. Verse 4, middle of the verse. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, if you want to go there, I have more. Verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day. That's the day that the Mosaic law prescribed that a male Jewish infant was to be circumcised. He said, done that of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. You may remember that Benjamin was Jacob's youngest son, the favored son, the son of my right hand, the little brother. Benjamin was also the tribe that gave Israel its first king. King Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. So he says, I'm, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, what he means here is, I speak Aramaic and Hebrew. I'm not, I'm not just a Greek convert to Judaism. I can do the whole Jewish thing. As to the law of Pharisee, the Pharisees were the strictest adherents of the Torah. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. If you want to talk about like who's the most zealous Jew you've ever met, it was me. I was so passionate about Judaism that I persecuted these Christians who said that Jesus was the Messiah because, of course, Jesus couldn't be the Messiah. He died on a cross after all. That's a curse in the Old Testament. A persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, as to the, th the kind of life the law required, blameless. So Paul is essentially saying, hey, if anybody has a resume of religious respectability, if you want to look at anyone and say, this person is a model Jewish citizen, I'm that person. I've got that resume. Verse 7, but whatever gain I had... I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So Paul lists out his entire spiritual resume and then with one statement draws an X through the whole thing. All that stuff that you could consider gain, all that stuff that might make me respectable in certain congregations and audiences, I counted all as loss for the sake of Christ. With that one sentence, he crosses out his entire resume and he helps us turn the corner 
to the second part of the sermon. The gospel calls us out of confidence in the flesh, and the gospel calls us into Christ. Look at verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. What a gloriously simple call. Hey, you know what the main thing is? Rejoice in the Lord. Just a, a simple command. And by the way, when he says the Lord here, as the New Testament writers often do, they're using a word that in the Old Testament, in the Torah, always referred to God himself, Yahweh, the one who made the covenant with Abraham in the first place. The New Testament writers take that word Lord and they consistently apply it to Jesus. Saying to us, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. Finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Very simple call, but in that call, do you hear the radical shift? What he's saying is, hey, don't, don't rejoice in your resume. Don't rejoice in all the stuff you have to offer the world or all the things that make you impressive to some room full of religious people. Don't rejoice in your heritage or your church background or the things you've done or the things you haven't done. Rejoice in the Lord. Like that's the only thing that matters. The gospel is a radical call to stake everything on Jesus, to leave behind religious respectability, whatever spiritual resume you think you have, and to stake everything on Jesus. He starts that way, finally, rejoice in the Lord. And that's the focus of verse 3 as well. Notice what he says. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. What marks us? What defines us? What does it mean to be a Christian? It means to worship by the Spirit and to glory in Christ Jesus and to put no confidence in the flesh. Who cares what else you have to define you? doesn't matter. When he says, we are the circumcision, notice the, the rhetorical move he's making. He's taking their word back from them. He's saying, this very word that you're using as sort of a, a boundary marker, an identifier of who the really religious people are, let me just take that word back from you. There's evidence in the New Testament that this phrase, the circumcision, had become a shorthand way of describing the Judaizers, these people who wanted Gentiles to embrace Jewish customs. We see it, for instance, in Galatians 2.12. You'll see it on the screen here. For before certain men came from James, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision. Wouldn't want them to see him eating with Gentiles. We see this phrase also in Titus Chapter 1, if you're on the men's retreat, this will sound familiar. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. The phrase the circumcision is a shorthand way of referring to these Judaizers who had divided the church into two groups. There was an in-group and there was an out-group. The in-group were those who were circumcised. The out-group was everyone else. But you see, the good news of the gospel is that the church of Jesus Christ is made up of only one group. Sinners 
who have come to Jesus Christ in faith. That's the only group that exists in the church. Sinners who have come to Jesus Christ by faith. Paul says it doesn't matter if you're a Jewish sinner or a Gentile sinner. doesn't matter if you came from a religious heritage or a pagan heritage. doesn't matter who you are or where you've come from. There's only one group of people in the church, sinners who have embraced Jesus in faith. And so he says, hey, we are the circumcision. Who's the we? Who's the circumcision? We who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. When he says we are the circumcision, he's not just making a rhetorical move to take away a word they liked to use. He's making a theological move to help us understand the whole history of what God has been doing among his people. You see, circumcision was the sign of God's covenant with Abraham. Back in Genesis 17, verse 9, we read, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So God establishes this covenantal relationship with Abraham, says, I'm choosing you and your descendants for a special purpose. And he says, here's the sign of the covenant, the mark of this relationship, circumcision. But we know, as we go through the Old Testament, that the problem was that they were repeatedly unfaithful to the terms of that covenant. They repeatedly failed to be the people that God had called them to be. And so the prophet Jeremiah speaks of a new covenant. He speaks of God bringing a new covenant in Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. God said, I've made this covenant with Abraham. They've repeatedly broken it. I'm going to make a new one. And what's going to be different about it is it's going to be inward and internal. I'm going to write my law on their hearts, put my law within them. So there, there was a new covenant to come, and the Jewish people, in reading the prophet Jeremiah, knew God made a promise to Abraham. God has made a promise to one day bring a new covenant. And so it's not a surprise when we get to the Gospel of Luke and we find Jesus at the Last Supper with his disciples. Luke 22, verse 19, And Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. That thing that Jeremiah promised was coming, it's happening right now. It's happening in my death. This is the sign of it. Jesus is claiming here to be the fulfillment of this covenant, to be the one who is bringing, instantiating this new covenant that Jeremiah had spoken of. You might think of it this way, Jesus fulfills the calling, the vocation of Israel by being an Israel of one. All the Jewish people, all God's chosen people in the Old Testament had failed to be faithful to the covenant. Jesus came as an Israelite, as a Jewish man, 
And he, in his life and in his obedience, faithfully fulfilled all the demands of God's covenant. And then he goes to the cross, dies for sin, rises from the dead, and therefore in him and in his death and resurrection, God launches this new covenant. God takes the covenant he made with Abraham and says, now in Christ, that covenant is renewed and extended to a whole family of people that wouldn't have even been a part of it before. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 2. He's speaking to Gentiles. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. He's saying, all right, you've heard these words. You've heard these people who say they're the circumcision. They refer to you as the uncircumcision. I'm just going to use those words for sake of debate, Paul's saying, because they're just things done in the flesh by hands. But remember, you Gentiles were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. Those covenants weren't for you. They were for Israel, and you weren't Israelites. So you stood outside of them. You were alienated from the people of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near, how? By the blood of Christ. In Jesus, God is renewing his covenant promises and he's opening wide his covenant, not just to Jewish people, but to Gentiles and to all who will come to Jesus in faith. And so Paul says, we are the circumcision. Who? Those of us who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. Because he's the one it was all about anyway. And put no confidence in the flesh. Who cares if you're circumcised? Who cares if you're a really scrupulous Jewish person or if you're a pagan Gentile? None of that matters. What matters is Christ. What does the gospel call us out of? It calls us out of confidence in the flesh. And what does it call us into? It calls us into identification with Christ, union with Christ, fellowship with Christ, glorying in Christ. The gospel is a radical call to stake everything on Jesus. So let's go back to where we started for a few minutes. What's your bio? What's your resume? What does confidence in the flesh look like for you? If you were going to write verses four through six for yourself, what things would you put there? If you're trying to be like, here's, here's the things that sort of like I've done religiously. You might say something like, I was raised in a strong Christian family. Or I was a leader in a campus ministry. Or I've sponsored people in a recovery group or I've been a leader at another church, or I've taught a Bible study, or I've been in missions or in ministry. It's not that those things are bad or wrong or even unimpressive. You should put them in your bio. The problem is those things can dull your sense of joy in Christ. When those become the things that you put forward, the places where you find your identity or where you want people to relate to you, 
they can dull your sense of joy in Christ. It's not that they're bad. I mean, notice that Paul is not denying or minimizing his background. He's not saying, wish I hadn't been a Hebrew of Hebrews, wish I wasn't from the tribe of Benjamin. Doggone it, why was I a Pharisee? It's not that he's not acknowledging that all of these things are part of what made him who he is. He's not rejecting his story or denying his story or minimizing his story. What he's saying is none of that stuff matters. Like that's not the basis of what makes me respectable before God. It's not the basis on which I want to relate to God's people. So likewise for you, listen, you've got really important and meaningful things that have made you who you are. There really are aptitudes and skills and abilities that you have. The question is, are those the things you're sort of living out of? Are you after a sense of religious respectability? Or is the thing that you really care about, you know what? I belong to Christ. My joy is in him. I might just ask the question this way. How precious is the Lord Jesus Christ to you? How precious is the Lord Jesus Christ to you? Our church is going to be defined by something. We are something together. Every church is. Every church has a culture, a vibe, an ethos. What I would love is if the primary thing that defined our church is, you know what, we're a bunch of people who are rejoicing in Christ. Like we're identified with him. We belong to him. The deepest and truest and most foundational things about us have to do with we love Jesus and we belong to him. There's a lot of other things that are also true about you. Is that the main thing? For a while, I rewrote a bio for myself, and it just said this. Bob Thune is a pastor in Omaha, Nebraska. He's a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. People didn't really like that bio. They were like, that doesn't really tell us very much about you. (laughs) But it was just my attempt to say, like, that's what matters. Like, that's what it means. That's what I want to live out of as a human being. It's what I want to try to lead out of as a leader. And here's what I know about you, Cormdale Church. If we, if we just on the way out said, hey, can we write down, you know, your accomplishments on the way out the door? You know what? You're a pretty impressive room full of people. Like if we just gathered up the bio of everybody in this room, there's a lot of amazing skills, aptitudes, achievements, abilities. I learn new things about people every day. I'm like, really? That person does that or has done that or It's amazing. The thing is, you really are an impressive bunch of people. And the thing is, who cares? (laughs) Like that doesn't really matter. What Paul wants you to say is like, look, whoever you are or whoever you aren't, what the gospel is is a radical call to stake everything on Jesus. 
to stop being defined by who you are or who you're not or what your bio is or what you've done or what you haven't done and to be defined instead by who is Christ to you? What does it mean to be united with him by faith? How precious is the Lord Jesus Christ to you? I long for us to be a people, and Philippians 3 is calling us to be a people that set aside our desire for religious respectability, that set aside all the ways we posture and sort of want to be known as or seen as certain things, and just to say, like, here's who a Christian is, one who rejoices in the Lord, one who glories in Christ Jesus and puts no confidence in the flesh. One who, whatever gain they have or could count, they've counted all as loss for the sake of Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. The gospel is a radical call to stake everything on Jesus. And what this text wants you to see is that all those things that define you and make you interesting and important in any social room of people don't really matter at the end of the day. They are true. They are even interesting. They're good conversation starters. I talked to someone after the first service, and they're like, hey, you know, sometimes at Intro GC, they make us go around and tell our story. I think now I'm just going to say, like, I rejoice in Christ. I was like, I get what you're, that's good application of the sermon. I don't know it's going to help people really get to know you that well. You might need to say more than that. So the, the application isn't like none of that is part of your story anymore. The application of this text is, who is Christ to you? Have you set aside all the things that make you respectable and impressive and just said, I'm staking my life on Jesus? That's the invitation this text is making, and that's what Paul is modeling for you. He's saying, hey, I got a resume. I got a list of cool stuff I've done. I got a list of impressive things that made me a really zealous Jewish leader. And I crossed it all out for the sake of Christ. Might you and I do the same? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the precious call and invitation of this text to rejoice in the Lord. To rejoice not in the things we've done or haven't done, the things that make us interesting or less interesting, but rather to rejoice in Christ in who he is and in what he's done. So Lord, this morning, would you help us add up whatever things seem like gain to us? <laughs> would you help us cross them out and leave them at the foot of the cross? Even now, would you mentally help us make the list? Write our bio in our heads and then leave it in our seats as we come to the communion table. That whatever's gained to us, we might count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Let us be a people who worship by the Spirit of God and who glory in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. So as we come to your table now, remind us of the beauty and the goodness of being defined by you and you alone because of what you've done for us in Jesus. We pray this for our good and your glory. Amen.